Catholic commentary. Spiritual warfare. Stay ready so you don't have to get ready. Jesus 911. Soul Patrol, Jesus 911. Two man car. My name's Jess Romero, Paul Clay. Today's the feast day, uh, December 12th, the feast day of Our Lady of Guadalupe. She appeared four times at St. Juan Diego. She converted a culture of death, the Aztecs, who worshipped demon gods, into a culture of life. Uh, the Spanish and the, the Aztecs were reconciled by the apparitions of the Blessed Virgin Virgen de Guadalupe. And uh, Mexico became a, a Christian kingdom. It became Christendom. In fact, as, pro, as Catholics were leaving for Protestantism across the pond over in Europe by the millions... Millions of Aztecs were being baptized into the Catholic Church over here on this side of the Americas as a result of the, the four apparitions of Our Lady Guadalupe to St. Juan Diego and then one to her uncle, the St. Juan Bernardino. And uh, Mexico uh, embraced Christ as king and embraced uh, the Catholic faith as the official religion. This was back in 1531. Our Lady Guadalupe, pray for us. Paul, how you doing, my friend? I'm doing well, Jess. Good to be hey. here. Yeah, hey, we're, we're going to talk today about a um, <clears throat> short little article. It's on predestination. It's on, on, on universal, universalist mentality. It's written by the greatest Catholic apologist for the Latin Mass, uh, the Latin Mass movement. His name is uh, Dr. Peter Kwasniewski. This, this guy is, uh, there is no better voice for all things Latin Mass, all things traditional than uh, Dr. Peter Kwasniewski. He's a friend of mine. I, I call him the Carl Keating of the, uh, of the TLM movement. Uh, Carl Keating was the one that started Catholic Answers some 40 years ago, uh, one of the premier apologists in the church, answering Protestants and atheist questions. Uh, well, Dr. Kwasniewski, he's, he's the, more the apologist for all things uh, pre-1965. He wrote an article here that we want to go through, which again talks about the universalist mentality with, with, in some modernists in the Catholic Church. And he also gets into predestination. So let's take a look at what he has to say. I'll, let me jump in the first paragraph here. He says, Our culture has a universalist mentality. What does that mean? That means that most people think that all you've got to do is be a human being, live, breathe, and die, and you go to heaven. And that's just not true. He writes, The second part of the Roman canon's prayer in the Latin Mass, Hunk Igitur, where it says, Dispose our days in thy peace. Command that we be rescued from eternal damnation and numbered among the flock of thine elect. This, this prayer here in the Latin Mass enshrines the truth about human salvation taught by the fathers, doctors, and the pre-modern popes before 1965 of the church. <clears throat> and thereby excludes the universalist mentality of our age, which assumes that all men will be saved. That salvation, in other words, is the default position for everybody <clears throat> unless they conscientiously and egregiously reject God. On the contrary, Dr. Peter says, <clears throat> the consensus of Catholic theologians from ancient times until the early 20th century was that man, due to his inheritance of original sin, cannot enter into the kingdom of heaven unless he dies and rises with Christ in baptism. And that, Accordingly, mankind is a lump of sin, masa damnata, 
from whom individuals are rescued by the application to their souls of the fruits of his redemption. Christ came into the world to save sinners from the destruction due to sins, inherited and actual. The soul path to eternal life is to be clothed with Christ, to be incorporated into his mystical body, and to die in a state of sanctifying grace. As Dr. Scott Hahn says in a lecture on the Gospel of John, he says, quote, The history of salvation is also the history of damnation. Close quote. Christ came into the world for judgment to cause separation by revealing the truth and exposing darkness. And my, here's my comment. Don't we even see that amongst families? Christ told us mm-hmm. that this is even going to happen within family life. Uh, he warned us. He goes, I didn't come to bring unity. I didn't bring, I didn't come to bring unity. Peace. I came to bring division. Yeah. I, didn't to, I, I didn't come to bring priests. I came to bring a sword. In other words, the gospel of Jesus Christ is going to divide, divide even family members. Some people are just going to reject them. I don't know why. Okay, that's a mystery to me, but some people will just reject them uh, to, their own, to, uh, to their own peril. Then it ends, it says, this is why the Roman martyrar- martyrology carefully records not only the names of each martyr, but the names of their persecutors as well. Paul, you want to pick up the next paragraph? Yeah. Um, moreover, in utter opposition to Pelagianism, the church teaches that God, not man, takes the first step in the renewal of our life. That all our sufficiency is from him, 2 Corinthians 3, 5. That no man comes to Jesus unless the Father draws him. That's John 6, 44. That we become adopted sons of God by his predestinating purpose, Ephesians 1, 5. That we persevere by his gift not by our own efforts alone. In short, God must number us in the flock of his chosen ones. He knowingly and lovingly chooses us to be rational sheep of his flock. He does not, as it were, happen to find us there in the sheepfold and express pleasant surprise. He brings us there and keeps us there. All this, the Roman canon, succinctly transmits in words as simple as they are sobering, reminding us that the Catholic Church, like her common doctor, St. Thomas, has always taught and still teaches the doctrine of predestination. The petition, the hoc igator, is a liturgical distillation of the teaching of the Apostle Paul as found especially in Ephesians and Romans. And that passage is, who has predestined us unto the adoption of children through Jesus Christ unto himself, according to the purpose of his will, in whom also uh, uh, we also are called by lot, being predestined according to the purpose of him who worketh all things according to the counsel of his will. For whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be made conformable to the image of his son, that he might be firstborn among many brethren. And whom he predestined them, he also called. And whom he called them, he also justified. And whom he justified, he also glorified. Wow. The liturgy bears witness to the church's faith in a number of places, such as the sequence of the Mass for the Dead, Dies Irie. 
The secret for the 23rd Sunday after Pentecost expresses the doctrine of the church to perfection. Here's what it says, quote, May this sacrifice of praise that we offer to thee, O Lord, be for an increase of our servitude, that is our service to thee. And what thou hast begun without our merits, thou mayest mercifully bring to completion, close quote. Also the post-communion for the Latin Mass, for the Usus Antiquor, the Feast of the Holy Name of Jesus, a relatively recent addition from the 16th century and incorporated into the general calendar in the 18th reads the following, quote, O Almighty and everlasting God, who didst create and redeem us, look graciously upon our prayer and with a favorable and benign countenance <clears throat> deign to accept the sacrifice of the saving victim, which we have offered to thy majesty in honor of the, of the name of thy son, our Lord Jesus Christ, that through the infusion of thy grace we may rejoice that, that our names are written in heaven under the glorious name of Jesus, the pledge of eternal predestination. Go ahead, Paul. <clears throat> okay. Um, but why is this doctrine important to us spiritually? In modern times, we are constantly being told how good we are and how well-intentioned, and yet how very much we are the innocent victims of the pre prejudicial environments that formed us, which of course entitles us to be uh, to coddling compensations. We are reassured of the greatness of man, of his dignity and rights, but we are in, in sore danger of forgetting fundamental truths about our condition. We are fallen beings alienated from God. I'm going to say that again. We are falling beings alienated from God, from our neighbors, even from our very selves. We have no rights to stand on before God. We are like filthy rags, as Isaiah says in Isaiah 64, 4. We are dependent on the divine mercy at every moment of our existence for our conversion Amen. to good, for our repentance from evil, for our escape from damnation, and above all, for the gift of eternal life in Christ Jesus. Continue. We stand at we stand at the edge of an abyss of never-ending misery into which we may fall at any moment by mortal sin should our life be snuffed out before we have repented from it if the Lord does not in his mercy prevent us from falling or after we have fallen grant us the gift of repentance lead us not into temptation, lead us not into the abyss, command that we be rescued from eternal damnation. This is reality as opposed to the shallow fantasy of egotism, uh, 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 of egoism, egoism, uh, the broad path that leads to destruction with which our contemporary culture envelop us. We stand, too, at the edge of an upward abyss, that of a never-ending bliss of heaven into which we are drawn up of ourselves in reverse, in reverse gravity to the supernatural grandeur of the sons of God. We'll continue. I got a lot of comments to make about predestination in light of the Catholic faith, uh, and uh, we'll continue talking about uh, uh, salvation, predestination, and damnation. Stick around. We'll be right back. <clears throat> Now, back to Jesus 911. 
If this call is not an emergency, dial 888-526-2151. We humbly beseech thee, Lord, command that we be numbered among the flock of thine elect. Number us, O Lord, with the good thief to whom thou didst say, This day thou shalt be with me in paradise. You're listening to Jesus 911, Jess Romero, Paul Clay. We're talking about a great article by Dr. Peter Kwasniewski, the greatest apologist for all things Latin Mass. Uh, the, the article's called, Our Culture Has a Universalist Mentality. The article ends, it says, he writes, The doctrine of predestination, rightly understood, and not, for example, Calvin's distortion of it, has its positive spiritual effects, an attitude of deep and abiding thanksgiving for the Lord's mercies without number. Since he died for us, while we were yet his enemies, that we might become his friends, a profound humility at, at having been chosen by God for no beauty of our own, but solely that he might make us beautiful in his sight, a sober watchfulness and earnestness, lest our names be raised from the book of life, and most of all, a constant recourse to prayer, that we may be established more and more in Christ and not in ourselves. For it is by being comfortable, or conformable, excuse me, to the image of his son, Romans eight twenty nine. And in no other way that our predestination is actually accomplished. In response to so great a mercy, the church places the words of the psalmist on the lips of, the, of her priest as they receive the precious blood, the price of our souls. Quote, what shall I render to the Lord for all the things that he hath rendered to me? I will take the chalice of salvation and I will call upon the name of the Lord. Praising, I will call upon the Lord and I will be saved from my enemies. Close quote. It is therefore of immense importance for nourishing the right faith of the church that the doctrine of predestination transmitted pure and entire in the Roman canon be present to priests in their offering of the Mass and to the people in their participation of it. Uh, that article from Dr. Peter Kwasniewski, he's a prominent Catholic professor, author, composer, and he's the authority in, in the world on the sacred liturgy, uh, pre-1965, the Roman Rite. Uh, so let me break, kind of break it down. The topic of predestination isn't, isn't very simple uh, to, uh, to try to wrap our minds around. <clears throat> but I think, I, I think uh, the catechism, the new catechism, simplifies it in a way that's very understandable. <clears throat> in paragraph um, 600, paragraph 600 of the new catechism I think it's the most it's the most simple uh, explanation that I've seen on the on the issue of predestination. Here's what it says: "Quote to God, all moments of time are present in their immediacy. When therefore God establishes His eternal plan of predestination, He includes in it each person's free response to His grace." In in this city, in fact, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. For the sake of accomplishing his plan of salvation, God permitted the acts that flowed from Herod and Pontius Pilate's blindness. So how would I how would I sum up that paragraph to, uh, for 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 all of you to understand it? It's pretty simple. Free uh, predestination it contains God's divine providence, and it me it contains our free will. 
And so there's this, there's this interfacing between divine providence and free will, which basically means that God gets his way while you get your way. That's what it means mm. in Catholicism. God gets his way ultimately while you get your way. There's a passage in the book of Sirach. Protestants don't have this book in the Bible, so they don't have the clarity that we have in the book of Sirach, chapter 15, verse 11, where it talks about, uh, again, the act of the will. Uh, in, in fact, our free choice in all matters. It says this, Sirach, chapter 15, 11. It says, do not say because of the, because of the Lord, uh, because of the Lord, I left the right way, for he will not do what he hates. Do not say it was the Lord who led me astray. For he has no need of a sinful man. The Lord hates all abominations, and they are not loved by those who fear him. It was he who created man in the beginning, and he left him in the power of his own inclination. If you will, you can keep the commandments, and to act faithfully is a matter of your own choice. God has placed before you fire and water. Stretch out your hand for, which, for, for whichever you wish. Before a man are life and death, and whichever he chooses will be given to him. For great is the wisdom of the Lord. He is mighty in power and sees everything. His eyes are on those who fear him, and he knows every deed of man. God has not commanded anyone to be ungodly, and he has not given anyone permission to sin. Close quote. Yeah, that's a phenomenal passage on, uh, on again, on, on the power of free will, which is the power of the soul. Now, let me go to the angelic doctor here, the, the greatest theologian that the church has produced in 2,000 years, St. Thomas Aquinas. One day, his sister, his actually his, his uterine sister, asked his, his brother, St. Thomas, how she can obtain salvation. And here's what he answered his sister. One phrase. He said, will it? Nothing more is necessary. Mm. Will it? He said, the promises of God demand from us only this one condition, sister. Will it? Wow. Okay. So what do I mean by that? So the, the conditions of salvation are, are reduced to the single one act of your soul. The soul has to will it. The soul has to choose Christ. The, the soul has to choose to become a disciple of Christ and surrender themselves. And that's an act. Nobody can do that for you. God can't do that for you. Our lady can't do that for you. This is, an, this is something that God allows each and every person uh, in their heart to come to that decision. Just will it. That's the primary condition for salvation. It's an act of the soul. And just to prove it from Scripture, if you remember, <clears throat> the conditions of salvation <clears throat> could be reduced to this, again, this single act of the will of the soul to choose Christ. Remember when the angels were proclaiming, when the angels were proclaiming at Bethlehem, uh, when they saw our Lord Jesus Christ uh, being born on a stable. And it says in, in, uh, in Luke chapter 2, verse 14, it says, it says in the Dewey Reams Bible, the pre-1965 Bible, it says, And on earth peace to men of... Glory to God in the highest. And, and on earth peace to men of goodwill. So could stop right there. Men of goodwill. Notice, <clears throat> this is what St. Thomas said. Will it or goodwill. 
St. Thomas didn't say, or the Bible doesn't say, peace to men of good character. The Bible doesn't say, peace to men of, of good genius. The Bible doesn't say, uh, peace to men of good deeds, peace to men of good speech. No. The Bible says, peace to men of good will. Why? Because salvation is an act of the will. It is one of the faculties of the soul. And Preach everybody, it, yeah, everybody has the ability to choose Christ or reject him. And, and yep. this is why, again, this is why this program is and programs like this are important, because the soul, the highest faculty of the soul is called the intellect. And, and then after that, you have what's called the will. Uh, this is why it's so important to consistently form yourself with a life of faith and prayer. By reading scripture, reading good spiritual books, and having a prayer life, because what that does is that forms the intellect according to the word of God. We need to form the intellect according to the word of God. If not, we're just walking around like a bunch of cyborgs and zombies. Once you form your intellect with the word of God, guess what? Then the will kicks in, the heart. Then the, the heart yeah. is going to follow the intellect because the intellect has been feeding the whole, the, the entire soul with the word of God. The will, the heart is going to say, yes, I choose Christ. And so, again, all of this, although God is constantly, constantly sending us graces, uh, God's not going to override a person's free will, Paul. Yeah, Jess. Uh, wow. Uh, you said that in such a, a, a powerful, clear way. Uh, you know, as soon as you talked about the will, uh, you know, that the Bible verse jumped out at me, whosoever will, mm. let him come, Jesus said. Uh, you know, just that, that delicate dance between divine providence and the human free will. Yes. You know, it's, it's, it's somewhat of a, a um, a paradox, you know, yeah. depending on how yeah. on how you look at it, but at the same, time, you know, um, as the author of the article pointed out, God is clearly, and no one can distort it. Particularly when you go to Latin Mass, it, you know, this is really you know driven in how God is essentially responsible for our salvation mm. from its inception, yes, to the very end. Uh, and, um, you know, so those that would try to distort Catholicism and, you know, and say that, oh, you know, you guys believe you have to work your way to heaven. No. Um, it, you know, it, nothing could be further from the truth. And if you think and, and, and if you and if you think that I suggest that you go and you read through uh, the Latin mass liturgy, uh, you know, right? Get, get your, yeah, yeah. Get yourself yeah. the liturgy from 1962. <laughs> read it. And you're going to see clearly, um, you know, the gospel, uh, uh, you know, the gospel of God's grace uh, it, it just, uh, you know, instilled, in, you know, in the liturgy. It's just uh, it's a beautiful thing. And uh, uh, I like what you said about, you know, um, it's just God's free. Uh, God has given us free will and we can underplay that, you know, even. I was reminded of a quote from St. Augustine in crowning our merits. God is crowning his own gifts mm. uh, and that in God crowns us. We are crowned by his mercy. You know, so again, 
this is what we Catholics believe. Uh, God, in him we both move and breathe and have our being. Apart from him we can do nothing. Amen. Amen. I'll give you another simple way of understanding the doctrine of predestination. Father Gabriel Amorth, uh, Rome's exorcist for 29 years, he wrote it in one in four sentences, and it's very succinct on predestination. Uh, he passed away in 2016. He said this, When I am told by those who confuse predestination with God's providence that God already knows who will be saved and who will be damned, and therefore we, and therefore anything we do is useless, I usually answer with four truths that the Bible spells out for us. Number one, God wants everyone to be saved. Check that box off. Two, mm-hmm. no one is predestined to go to hell except the devil and his angels. Check that box off. Three, Jesus died for everyone. Checks that, check that box off. And four, everyone is given sufficient graces for salvation. <laughs> Though some mm-hmm. people reject his grace. That's, that's predestination in four sentences from Father Gabriel Amorth. Hey, Jesus, uh, 911 two-man car. We're going to move on now to talk about uh, just a good way to share with, with Protestants, our separated brothers, uh, why the Bible belongs to Catholics. Now, back to Jesus 911. If this call is not an emergency, dial 888-526-2151. Soul Patrol, Jesus 911. Before we go on to the next topic, I want to talk about a little bit about what universal salvation means. There are some brands of Christianity, the more modernist brands, and in, in, in Catholicism, you've got modernist theologians and modernist Protestant uh, pastors that teach, or theologians that teach, that at the end of time, because God is so merciful and God is love and God is so good, that at the end of time, everyone will be restored and everybody will make it to heaven. All those people in hell, hell will be emptied. And uh, they will all be saved ultimately at the, at, at the end of time when Christ comes back. Uh, Origen went even further. He was, he was going to be one of the great theological giants of the church. And in fact, a lot of his writings on the Old Testament are just second to none. But when it came to this topic on universal salvation, he did go off the edge. He went off the rails. And Origen, one of the, one, who would have been one of the great church fathers, he actually said that uh, even the devil and the demons at the end of time, hell would be emptied and they would re-enter heaven, you know, uh, and, and, and be saved. Uh, that's universal salvation. That's not taught by the Catholic Church. That's a heresy. That's, uh, that's, and that's a heresy just to make people feel good so people could be comfortable in their sinful lifestyle, Paul. Yeah, yeah. Um... Yeah, Jess, uh, that's uh, that's quite a that's quite a mouthful you just said. And uh, uh, you know, in studying the topic on universal salvation, uh, what I noticed though that if you really read his version of it, uh, it involves a certain amount of suffering, so to speak. It's not like a get out of jail free type of of a pass, uh, but he. You know, he tries to relate it to, you know, protecting uh, certain attributes about God, you know, in that, you know, and and he uses, you know, um, he uses a lot of scripture verses that like uh, that seemingly support his position. And that's why it's important just as Catholics. I mean, even when you're reading church fathers, uh, the good news is that we have the Catholic Church. 
Jesus promised to send uh, the helper, the Holy Spirit, guide the church in truth. So once the church comes to uh, a consensus on an issue, uh, uh, that's the beauty that I love about the Catholic Church. It's, it, you know, that's the answer. You know, you don't have to look any further. It doesn't matter what my opinion is or what Origen's opinion is or what right. this guy says. It matters what Mother Church teaches us. And God has given us that assurance through the church. And that's why it's important to be Catholic. That's right. Now, now there are some areas of theology that there's wiggle room where people, good theologians, debate certain issues and the church has not resolved yes. them. And, yes. uh, and, and we should give people the freedom to debate those issues. But right. when the church declares something through, through the extraordinary magisterium or the ordinary magisterium, uh, then uh, the case is settled. As uh, St. Augustine would say back in the fourth century, uh, Rome has spoken, the matter is settled. And what he's talking mm -hmm. about there, he's talking about... Uh, the, the the eternal Rome, the magisterium, it's a uh, Roma locuta finita est. Rome has spoken. The matter is settled. Uh, yeah. Paul, I want to jump into another topic here. This is near and dear to my heart because this is what, uh, again, I you know this is an important part of the Catholic faith. I, you and you and one of the things about you and myself is we love Scripture. We love Holy, the Word of God, the sacred yeah. Scriptures. And so this article, for all of you Bible junkies like me and Paul, you're going to love this article. It's called The One Question to Convert All Protestants, Where Did the Bible Come From? Second question, did Catholics add books to the Bible or did Protestants remove books from the Bible? And the truth about the Apocrypha. This is a great article written by a guy named Scott Smith. I don't know who he is, but uh, very, very simple, very, very succinct. And we'll just go right through it. He says, if there was ever a zinger to stump Protestants, it is this question. And it's a simple question. If all Christians truly knew and understood this question, our divisions would begin to evaporate. The question is, where did the Bible come from? That's it. That's the question every Protestant must answer for himself or herself. More specifically, where did the Bible's table of contents come from? <laughs> Why does the Bible include some books and exclude others? Did Catholics add the Deuterocanonical books, the so-called Apocrypha, or did Protestants remove these books because the books contradicted Protestant theology? I picked number two. <laughs> <laughs> Go ahead, Paul, pick it up from there. Yeah. Here's also a great... Uh, a great interview of Dr. John uh, Bergsma, a Protestant minister and convert to Catholicism on the journey home, which centers on these basic questions that troubled him as a Protestant. Dr. Berg, uh, Dr. Bergsma describes how a Protestant minister, how as a Protestant minister, he couldn't satisfactorily answer the fundamental question of where the Bible came from. This ultimately resulted in his Catholic conversion. So what's the answer? Where did the Bible come from? What Bible did Jesus and the apostles use? Here's a comic I drew up about Martin Luther's Bible. Luther removed several key books from the Christian Bible. Why would the father of Sola Scriptura, the Bible alone, remove books from the Bible? Books which conveniently did not match his Protestant theology. 
and there's a cartoon. there's a cute cartoon yeah describe the cartoon yeah. Paul. For, yeah yeah uh yeah well it's just got uh, martin luther standing there and uh somebody uh, is sitting there holding the septuagint i uh and uh it says uh well uh, that's christ is it it's, yeah it looks Jesus like it's christ. Christ. yeah yes yeah and he says your uh bible is looking a little thin mister <laughs> this bible belongs to martin luther of course he's standing there holding his own bible and that's that's essentially just that's something that i and and every christian should deal with is that uh again you look you, you listen to the history channel and they'll sit there and tell you oh certain books uh, were not included or removed or whatever but the the bible the catholic church is the natural habitat for the bible the yeah. catholic church is uh you know is is the instrument that the holy spirit worked through to give us the bible and to determine what the canon of sacred scripture is it's mm. that simple yeah. and so as a protestant you would say if you say well the word of god says this well, the next thing out of their mouth should be, well, I hope it's the word of God. I mean, I assume it's the word of God. I mean, I hope those Catholics over the centuries, uh, the Catholic Church got it right because they depend on us to, mm -hmm. uh, you know, mm -hmm. uh, and the decisions of Catholic bishops and councils that uh, determined what the canon of sacred scripture was. Yeah. And of course, all under the guidance of the Holy Spirit. You got it. It is extremely important to get this right. Did Catholics add or did Protestants take books away? There's a terrible warning against adding or taking away books from the Bible in Revelation 22, 18 and 19. It says, quote, I warn everyone who hears the, the words, who hears the words of the prophecy of this book. That's the book of Revelation. If anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues described in this book. And if anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God will take away his share in the tree of life and in the holy city, which are described in this book. Close quote. Now, that verse is talking about, John's talking about, don't add to the book of Revelation specifically, but you could take it in, in a wider semantic range. Don't add to any of the 73 books of the Bible, not only Revelation, don't add to anyone. You can make that argument. For 1,500 years, from the time of Christ until the Protestants break from the Catholic Church, all Christians everywhere had been using the same version of the Old Testament. It was called the Greek Septuagint. Mm -hmm. Then Martin Luther comes along back in the 15th century. Guess which version of the Old Testament, that is the Jewish scriptures, Jesus and the apostles used? They used the pre-Luther version. Why would Luther and subsequently John Calvin change the Bible so dramatically, especially with their emphasis on sola scriptura, the doctrine of authority residing in the Bible alone? It doesn't make any sense. This is the key verse here that I discovered like 25 years ago. This, this, this bit of uh, theological gold. Here it is. The version of the Old Testament used by Jesus, the apostles, St. Paul, and all Christians until the 1500s was the Greek Septuagint version. It was the Greek translation of the Jewish scriptures. This was a translation commissioned by King Ptolemy of Egypt for his library of Aleg at Alexandria. And here's my comment. But guess what? When you look at the Greek Septuagint, because they have a manuscripts over in Jerusalem, which you can look at, 
It contains the exact list of the 46 books in your Catholic Old Testament. So the, the Septuagint, that's kind of a weird word. Where does it come from? It means 70. King Ptolemy brought together 70 Jewish scholars to translate the Bible from Hebrew into Greek. King Ptolemy isolated the translators from each other so that they could not collaborate. Miraculously, each and every translation was identical. And that's yeah. the Bible that Jesus used 2,000 years ago. Jesus yeah. was not walking around with the King James Version or the NIV. <laughs> well, you know, uh, again, uh, you know, the, one of the great wonders of the ancient world was that library in Alexandria, right? They used to yeah. call it the Alexandrian canon. Mm -hmm. uh, so when those set, you know, and being that the Greeks had conquered the world and that was the language of the day, mm -hmm. that the universal language, you know, uh, it only stood to reason that they wanted to take the, the sacred writings of the Hebrews and translate them into the common tongue. And that translation, as you correctly said, Jess, was the Septuagint, the 70 scholars that got together. And uh, it's funny because um, in Protestantism, they use uh, the, the, that Jewish canon that, uh, uh, that excludes certain books. And, and from what I was told, Many of those uh, books, the reason why the Jews excluded them was because they didn't at the time have Hebrew uh, translations, uh, which during the discovery of the Dead Sea Scrolls, that was uh, actually uh, remedied in some instances. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, six of the yeah, seven so, books had Hebrew originals. Yeah. yeah. Hey, uh, Jesus 911, uh, we're coming to a hard break. We'll be right back. We'll continue talking about the Bible that Jesus and the apostles used 2,000 years ago. Now, back to Jesus 911. If this call is not an emergency, dial 888-526-2151. Soul Patrol, Jesus 911. So, when Jesus read from the scriptures, he's reading from the Septuagint version of the Bible. When the apostles read from the scriptures, they're reading from the Septuagint version of the Bible. Then, what version should Christians read from? <laughs> I dare say, the Septuagint <laughs> version of the Bible. Martin Luther took out the following books from the Septuagint translation of the Old Testament, Tobit, Judith, Wisdom, Sirach, Baruch, First and Second Maccabees, and parts of Daniel and Esther. Luther put these books into an appendix of his Bible. John Calvin ripped them out entirely. But why these books? The all-important questions, because Luther didn't find these books in the canon of the Jews of his time. So Luther took his table of contents from the Jews of his time over, over the Jews of Jesus' time, even over the canon of Jesus himself. That's an important statement there, okay? Martin Luther took his table of contents from the Jews of his time, that's back in 1517, over the Jews of Jesus' time and even over the canon of Jesus himself. So you got to ask yourself, which version of the Bible should you be reading? Uh, the, I'll make well, just one comment. In uh, the 1940s, in, during the discovery of the Dead Sea Scrolls, which were parchments of the scriptures that were found in big old uh, uh, jars inside the caves in Qumran, which were on the shores of the Jordan, uh, when those when those scrolls were found 
guess what? Out of the seven disputed books, they found six Hebrew originals in those uh, in, in those uh, clay jars in the Qumran caves. So six of the seven disputed books, they have found Hebrew originals. Paul, go ahead. Right. Yeah. So, so you know, in comment to that, Jess, and that's why uh, that was the justification a lot of people use. They said, well, at the time, the Jews only accepted as canon books that they found written in the original Hebrew. Well, guess what? Uh, uh, obviously, they, you know, their logic was wrong because they were preserved. God had preserved these books in the original Hebrew. So their, their whole logic was wrong there. Yeah. Uh, Go ahead. Pick it up. That's just. Yeah. Um, let's see. The Bible, the at? liturgical book. Yeah. Yeah. The Bible was a liturgical book. For Catholic what, was it was and is and is was and is. Oh, yeah. 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 Was and is a liturgical a liturgical book meant for Catholic worship in the first centuries. Christians began to ask, what can we read in the church? They answered this question simply, what have we been reading in Mass? This was their principal criterion for canonicity, tradition. Hmm, very interesting. (laughs) That was how we got the Bible, according to Dr. John Bergsma. The Bible was a book for the liturgy based on what was read in the liturgy. Certain books were included in the canon of Scripture, and certain books were excluded. Why were certain books included? Made the decision. What was the criteria? Here is a great in. Oh, well, and then they talk about it. There's a video on there by uh, uh, Dr. Petrie. Uh, yes. And and he talks about uh, you know how they how they finally came. Uh, you know this idea, the supposed Council of Jamnia that. Uh, uh, that the Jews got together that never truly existed. Uh, it's interesting if you go back and read it, but the bottom line is just the Catholic Church is the authority on what should be included in the Bible and what should not be included. The New Testament, as a matter of fact, the New Testament uh, is uh, almost entirely quotations from the Septuagint. Okay. Very few are actual quotations from the Hebrew scriptures. They are quotations. As you know, the New Testament was written in Greek. And so therefore, as you said, the Bible of the apostles and Jesus was the Septuagint. So again, the Septuagint did include those supposed apocrypha, or we call them deuterocanonical books, uh, and so it's it's really an open and shut case. And if you're going to be intellectually honest, uh, you can come to no other conclusion. That's right. Paul, and there's even a question whether this Council of Jamnia even took place. But but yeah. let's assume, let's assume for for a minute that okay, that some some scholars believe that there was this Jewish council held around ninety about ninety AD. And With they no say that proof. it was the yeah, it was a collection comprised of a small, you know, bunch of a, a small group of Jewish rabbis, and uh, that's where they fixed their canon at this council. Okay, let's just say that did happen, and yeah, let's just say it's, it did happen in ninety A.D., which again 
It's uh, it's very suspect. The fact is, mm-hmm. any Jewish council for us as Catholics after the birth of the Catholic Church is irrelevant. We don't care right. what a Jewish council says in 70, 90, 135 AD. It's irrelevant to us because the because the the Jewish the the, the, the Jewish leaders have lost their lampstand. After the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, that's why the temple was destroyed by an earthquake. The the authority has moved, the lampstand of authority has been transferred from the Jews, the Jewish magisterium, to the 12 apostles. So it doesn't matter if Jews had or didn't have dozens of councils after the, 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 the birth of the Catholic Church. They have no authority to speak for God any longer. Yes, yes. And, 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 and just to, you know, uh, add to that, Paul the Apostle in the New Testament says that as far as the gospel is concerned, that the Jews are enemy of the gospel, you know? And so uh, why would we go to enemies of the gospel those that were responsible for the persecution, the first persecutions of Christians were done by the Jewish people. So we're going to look to them to determine what we believe is the canon of Scripture. Now I'm going to I'm going to stick with the apostles, the church. Uh, Jesus gave the keys to Peter. Uh, he gave them the the power of binding and loosing, and he promised the Holy Spirit to guide the church in all truth. Uh, so as a Christian Catholic. Uh, I'm going to go with the Lord. <laughs> Absolutely. And, and, and Paul, in the New Testament, when the church is, all, is, is now born and Christ is, is dead and, and risen and ascended into heaven, in the yeah. book of Revelation, the risen Christ, you know what he calls the unbelieving Jews, the ones that rejected him as a Messiah? He calls them synagogue the synagogue of Satan. Of Satan. <laughs> How yeah. are you going to listen to any counsel that comes from the synagogue of Satan? That's, mm-hmm. as, as Catholics, once again, they have lost their authority to speak for God. Yeah, and that's why we just in the Catholic Church say the Catholic Church represents the fullness of the faith. You know, we have basically all the pieces. It's like putting a puzzle together when you're looking at church history, and we have all the pieces, uh, and nobody else has all the pieces. <laughs> right, exactly. Yeah, they're all, they're all deficient in some way, shape, or form. Yep. They're all yeah. uh, again. They 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 they're they're all uh, there's elements and 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 crucial elements that they're missing. Uh, yeah. But uh, and, and Paul, one of the when you go down the article, we got about two more minutes left. One of the arguments that Protestants will will use and, and Mormons use it especially when you ask them, well, how do you know? Like if you ask a Protestant, how do you know that this the Bible is the Word of God? You know, they, they use circular reasoning. You know, yeah. they'll say, well, the Bible says that the Bible is the word of God. Well, again, <laughs> yeah. you know, that, 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 that's, that, that way of arguing, you'd be laughed out of a speech and debate class. You'd be laughed out of a courtroom if you use circular argumentation uh, that the Bible says it's, that the Bible. It's, it's called a logical fallacy. Yeah. And why, so you can't use. You can't offend logic when it comes to answering a very basic question. Uh, Again, the church, the Catholic church, 
Jesus said, all authority in heaven and earth has been given unto me. And by his authority, he charged the apostles and their successors to go out into the world by his authority, empowered by his Holy Spirit in order to uh, basically, uh, uh, you know, uh, march through history and save the souls of men. Yeah. And and uh, even somebody like uh, John Calvin who was one of the headier Protestants at the time in his Institutes of the Christian Religion. Again, he uses a circular argumentation. He says the following quote, Let this point therefore stand, that those whom the Holy Spirit has inwardly taught truly rest upon Scripture, and that Scripture indeed is self-authenticated. Hence, it is not right to subject it to proof and reasoning. You know, that's kind of a Muslim argument. You say, Muslims, why, do I, why should I believe in the Quran? Because God says that the Quran's the, Allah says the Quran's the word of God. Is there any proof? Is there any reason? Or is there any rational arguments? Is there any history? No. Allah says it's the word of God, so it's the word of God. Shut up. Calvin used the same argument in his Institutes, uh, volume, volume 7, uh, ch- paragraph 5. Huh. And and Paul Mormons will use a, a similar argumentation as well. I mean these these people they, Mormons mean well. I'm surrounded by a lot of Mormons out here in Arizona. Mm-hmm. But when you ask them, well, how do you know that the Book of Mormon is, is is deserves to be added to the canon of Scripture? The Mormons will say because they'll say pray to the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit will confirm it by a burning in your heart. Mm-hmm. The burning well, in the bosom. Yeah. Again. Those arguments are subjective. Uh, I, how do I know that the Bible's the Word of God? There's, well, two ways. Number one, the church is a pillar and foundation of truth, 1 Timothy 3.15. And the church, which, exi- which exists outside of me as a, as a magisterium, the church tells me, has declared it, has studied this, has yeah. pondered and reflected, and has been given the Scriptures by God. The church tells me it's the Word of God. So St. Augustine, that's why he said in the 4th century, why do I believe in the Gospels? Why do I believe in the Bible? Based on the authority of the Catholic Church. Amen, brother. Simple. Amen. Yeah. Hey, you've been listening to Jesus 911, two-man car, Jess Romero, Paul Clay. We're on every single Monday talking about all things Catholic. I hope you enjoyed the show. If you like what you hear, then, uh, you know, pass, uh, pass this show to your friends. The full show link is at vmpr.org. You can also find us on social media at VMPR Radio. And our YouTube channel, Full Sheen Ahead, share this with your friends and family and evangelize everybody you love. Uh, We hope you continue having a happy Holy Advent. And uh, God bless you. Keep the faith. Our Lady Guadalupe is her feast day today. Pray for us.